Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. We'll practice the rule of life. Let's all exhale all the anxieties, all the toxicities, everything that preoccupies us from engaging with God in this moment. Let's exhale. And let's inhale the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, and the sovereignty and the presence of God. And I'll be reading from Jesus Calling Devotional, and it's spoken in the person of God. Bring me your weakness and receive my peace. Accept yourself and your circumstances just as they are, remembering that I am sovereign over everything. As you live in the radiance of my presence, my peace shines upon you. Turn toward me. You will cease to notice how weak or strong you feel because you will be focusing on me. The best way to get through this day is step by step with me. Turn toward me. Continue this intimate journey, trusting that the path you are following is headed towards me. That's the word of the Lord today. Amen. Okay. All right. First slide. Can I get that up there? Awesome. Okay. So this week, I had the privilege of babysitting Prisca while working, while writing a sermon. So needless to say, I'm pretty tired. Uh, <laughs> so, since the beginning of the year, we've been focusing on the topic of community um, and uh, how being, and just to recap, I guess, a couple of the past sermons, um, how being vulnerable and dependent is antith antithetical to the prevailing culture of self-sufficiency, how sometimes experiences in life, particularly experiences of disappointment and loss, drive us against and away from our communities towards self-isolation, but God sends Jesus and his people to meet us at the well to restore us back to himself, back to a place of holiness. Um, and normally when I prepare for a sermon, I go through a ton of content. I'm consuming topic after topic, hoping to land on something that causes me to stop and wonder. Um, and despite what y'all might think, uh, sermon material doesn't just come out of my head into a page. Uh, it's pretty extensive process of research, reading, learning, uh, reflecting on my own theological biases and praying that the Lord doesn't strike me down. Um, so it's a lot of that. But this week, uh, while thinking about what else could be shared about the topic community, I stumbled on the topic of social holiness. Um, it's a concept that originates from John Wesley that over the years has been misconstrued as social justice. Um, so social justice, a quick definition, is the belief that everyone deserves an equal footing, that all deserve access to the same sort of political, social, economic rights and privileges. Social justice, I'm not arguing, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, albeit highly politicized. 
And social holiness, on the other hand, is categorically different. And we'll explore more of that later in the sermon. But in order to explain social holiness properly, uh, we're first going to ask the question, what is holiness, right? What does it mean when we say that God is holy? What does holiness look like for me? And we'll look at a few examples of how holiness is described in the Bible. First through an example in Moses, uh, the prophets Elijah and Ezekiel, and then in Jesus. And finally, we'll loop back to the topic of social holiness and explain why it and not social justice is foundational in our understanding of Christian community. All right, next slide. So I ran the typical Google search to see how holiness is defined uh, by Oxford Dictionary. And it came up with the above. So I started with holiness, the state of being holy. It's simple, but it doesn't really tell you much. Uh, holy, dedicated to God or a religious purpose, sacred. Um, used in an exclamation of surprise or dismay. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Um, okay, guess not. Uh, sacred, <laughs> connected with God or dedicated to a religious purpose. So starting from these definitions, um, I didn't really get much out of them, so uh, I did some more for the research. From the Gospel Coalition website, we get a definition that, of holiness that points to moral purity. And it sounds like this. The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and also the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. The core idea behind holiness is absolute moral purity. God is not only perfect, he is the very source and standard of goodness. In this regard, goodness has permanence to it precisely because it's rooted in the eternal and everlasting God. Goodness does not change because God does not change. So holiness is connected to an idea about moral purity. And maybe sometime in your Christian journey, you've heard holiness defined as being set apart, right? Um, kadosh, the Hebrew word for holiness, means set apart. It means distinct or unique. Um, and if we consider all of these definitions that I just spewed out together, we get something like this. Holiness is a state of being connected or dedicated to or set apart for God's absolute moral purity, i.e. God's goodness. So it's a state of being connected to, dedicated, or set apart for God's goodness. Um, but this definition of holiness is still a bit weak, uh, especially if we find ourselves in a position where we need to explain God's holiness to someone. Um, so holiness is an expansive, rich idea that gets developed over and over in the Bible, and it deserves a lot of further study. So moral goodness and being set apart are only part of the definition. And so we're, we'll, we'll turn to the first passage of today in Exodus. All right, so I'm going to read Exodus 3 real fast. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flocked to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Then the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
At this, mo at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. All right, next slide. So it might have looked something like this. Um, some observations of what I just read. Verse 2, God appeared to Moses as flames of fire from within a burning, not burning bush. Um, and then verse 5, God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Now, in our study of holiness, we have to wonder, why is the ground suddenly holy? Any thoughts? No? Okay. <laughs> because to the best of my knowledge, um, the ground near this bush didn't suddenly become morally pure. Um, the ground didn't wake up and decide to be good. So barring anything that the ground did or could have done, uh, we have to conclude that the ground is holy because it's in close proximity to God, right? Um, so barring anything that the ground could have done, it must have been because of God. Um, the ground became holy because God came near to it. So using the same logic, uh, we gather that a thing, anything, people, dirt, or otherwise, that's identified as holy, its holiness is derived from being connected to God. And the idea that surrounds proximity to God's holiness are further explored in Leviticus, in stories about the temple, where God's holy presence is located at the center of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And from Leviticus, we learn that God's presence is dangerous, and for the unclean, it's terrifying. To be in proximity to the holy presence of God required the Israelites to become ritually pure, a state where you separate yourself from anything culturally related to death. So like touching diseased skin or dead bodies or certain bodily fluids, being associated with death made you ritually impure. So all of this was covered way back in a sermon about the goats, um, but God is the source of holiness and if I want to approach God, I must honor and acknowledge that God, God as creator and author of life. And in doing so, I must disassociate myself from cultural symbols of death. If I disrespect God's holiness by not keeping ritual purity practices, God's holiness will wound me. So that's kind of what you get from Exodus and Leviticus. So when I was a kid living in South Carolina, uh, not having much to do, I would stare at the sun. Um, if I acknowledged the sun's power, power to light up the entire solar system, I wouldn't stare at it. Um, I, expect, I respect the power of the sun by not staring at it. But if I do, my retinas will be fried. All right. Not because the sun is angry at me, but because I didn't acknowledge its power. Yes. Okay. So. For the purposes of this sermon, what, what can we glean from Exodus and Leviticus is that our connection or proximity to God is the basis for what makes something holy, right? Um, God's holy presence is dangerous, like the sun, like Aslan and Narnia, um, and drawing near to God requires us to move from impurity to purity um, and willful blindness uh, to wearing sunglasses. Anyways, um, all right. So keeping this in mind, we move to the passage in Isaiah. All right, so we just covered Moses, Leviticus, Isaiah, next verse. And we read this together, but I'll read it again. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled this temple. 
and above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. All the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the live coal in his hand, with which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice, voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. All right, next slide. All right, so we see a scene that may or may not resemble this, who knows. But um, Isaiah receives a vision from the Lord, seated on a throne in the temple throne room. And he heard the seraphim call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he's terrified because he knows what we read in Exodus and Leviticus and understands the danger of being himself impure in God's presence. He knows all this. He could instantly be destroyed. Then a seraphim flew to Isaiah with the hot coal from the altar, touched his lips and declares his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. So there are two ideas about holiness that are being developed in this vision of Isaiah. Um, the first is what the seraphim are saying about God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the second idea that's being developed is about the burning coal. So this, the first idea, the seraphim declare that the Lord to be holy, 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 and then go on to explain what they mean. They say that the Lord is holy because the whole earth, all of creation, is filled with God's glory. Their worship, their worship is highlighting God's unique role and position as creator. So a core idea of, God's, or of Isaiah's vision is that God is holy, God is set apart, he is other from all created things because he is the author, the creator of all things, and that sets him apart. God is the only being with power and creativity to make everything as it is, so creation is recognized as God's glory. And that holiness is good. We exist because of God's holiness, of that goodness. All right, so the second idea that's being developed is depicted by the hot coal that's taken from the altar that touches Isaiah's lips. And the idea is this. The burning coal from the altar makes Isaiah pure or holy. And coming from a world where we only had Exodus and Leviticus, that was a radically new idea. Leviticus tells us that if you touch something impure, the impure thing would transfer its impurity to you. We become impure, but now here's this, here's this new idea where uh, in Isaiah, where you have this coal, this very holy, pure object that transfers its purity to you, right? It transferred its purity to Isaiah. And Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. Instead, he's transformed by it. And it's the idea that the creative power and goodness of God overcomes our impurity and it's transformative, making unclean people clean. God's holiness is not only dangerous for the impure, God's holiness is now transformative to those that it touches. So that's a new idea that's being developed, particularly in Isaiah. All right, next slide. 
now we move on to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 47. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits, led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there, uh, there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows, where there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand among the shore, along the shore from Engedi to Enegliam. Uh, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the water, uh, both banks of the river. Their le leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. All right, sorry, that was a long passage. But next slide. So to sum it up, Ezekiel has a vision of the temple. He sees water coming out from the temple, out from underneath the threshold or the door. And this water, which started as a trickle, became a stream and then a deep river that's deep enough to swim in. And the river that, uh, a river that no one could cross. And this river starts flowing through the desert because it's the desert, uh, leaving a trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making salt water fresh and full of life. So I guess in that reference, you kind of have to know what the geography looks like to actually make sense of what's actually happening. But basically, water's coming from the temple and bringing life to a place that's pretty lifeless. And like in Isaiah, we have a new idea of holiness that's being developed. And like Isaiah, we, ha we expect a situation like Exodus and Leviticus, where we expect the holiness of God to be dangerous and difficult to approach, but we get a very new radical idea. And it's not a vision of impure people becoming ritually immoral, moral, morally pure to enter into the temple, but instead it's a vision of God's holiness flowing out of the temple like living water, making its surroundings pure and bringing about life. So Ezekiel's vision reveals the holiness of God permeating its surroundings and bringing life to desert spaces and dead places. And to the Israelites, these visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel are radically new concepts of God's holiness. And these ideas of God's holiness ultimately point to and are fulfilled by the person and actions of Jesus. So, moving on to Jesus. 
Matthew 8. When Jesus came from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses has commanded as a testimony to them. Matthew chapter 9. Next one? Yeah. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch this cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all of the region. All right. Next slide. So Jesus went around touching the categorically impure. Um, people with skin diseases, a woman with chronic bleeding, uh, or dead people. And people embodying these cultural symbols of death, people that under ritual purity practices defined in Leviticus would make Jesus impure by association. But instead, Jesus, the embodiment of the temple and God's holiness, touched unclean people and made them pure. The holiness of God flowed out of the temple and healed their bodies. So Jesus, the hot coal that in Isaiah's vision that renews unclean lips, Jesus, the river flowing from the temple that brings life to desert spaces and dead places. And in Jesus, not only do we find fulfillment in the holiness ideals of the Hebrew Bible, we find another two new ideas about holiness that are being developed. The first is that through Jesus, God chooses to reveal his holiness with love. If holiness is the nature of God, then love is the expression, the method, the motivation of God. The holiness and the love of God that meets perfectly on the cross. And the second new idea that, about holiness is this. Jesus claimed that he and his followers were God's temple, and that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. So we read in John 7, on the last day and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has, has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That is to say, as members of God's temple, we embody the holy presence of God and we go out into the world carrying God's holiness to bring about new life in love. All right, next slide. So back to the original topic of the sermon, which is what is social holiness? Um, the title of the message comes from John Wesley uh, in a preface that he wrote in 1739 for a volume titled Hymns and Sacred Poems, Wesley said this, um, and I'm gonna read the quote on the screen. Solitary religion is not to be found in the gospel accounts of Jesus. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Faith working by love is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. 
So we learned that holiness, at least for the ground, for people, for dirt, for things, are made holy by their proximity to God. We also saw a vision of Ezekiel and in Jesus' ministry that the holiness of God radiates from the temple, meets us, and overcomes our impurity and renews us. Wesley poignantly wrote, the beauty of holiness, of that inward man of the heart which is renewed after the image of God, this inward religion bears the shape of God so visibly impressed on it. So fundamental to social holiness is the restoration of the image of God, the, the new creation, in which the old has gone and the new has come. And we live out this personal transformation in community. So the whole idea is, is that after being transformed, we live out our sanctification in community. So for Wesley, social holiness was all about people going on to perfection, living out our sanctification in community, holding one another accountable with the hope that together the entire community would resemble Christ. Okay, next slide. So I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon that over the years, social holiness has been misconstrued for social justice. Um, Again, social justice is the belief that everyone deserves an equal footing. But here's the point that I wanted to make clear today. Social holiness is fundamentally different from social justice because inherent in social holiness is the salvation of the individual as the recipient of provenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace in whom the Imago Dei has been restored, enabling the move toward entire sanctification in community. Without this understanding of God's gracious activity, social holiness lapses into a sort of vapid social justice, where concern for societal structure and rights is preeminent, where the individual, not God, is the primary actor. And so here's the danger. When we love our communities and want to see them flourish, but we remove the gracious, enabling, transformative work of God, we may move the needle towards justice and equity, but we fail as a church. We practice love and we pursue holiness, but we do so in response to our having received grace first. That's the difference. And so I just wanna close real quick with a passage uh, from 1 John 4. Um, and I think this beautifully sums it up, but this is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we may live through him. This is his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they are in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us and God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. And together as we pray, as we close our service today,
I think holiness in a postmodern, post-Christian framework is very unpopular. The idea of forgiveness and grace is very popular because we all need it. <laughs> but holiness, it's like, ah, holiness is not a topic we like to go near because in, in many ways it sounds holier, holier than thou, could sound pious. But if we learn anything about the totality of scripture, which is the discipline of the book, no one talks about in spiritual directions, is that how do you discern real life change versus emotionalism? How do you discern real renewal, gospel renewal, and the power of God? Because they many times look the same. You can have people jumping up and down. They can be lifting their hands. They could be people weeping. But the fruit... Bible teaches us that when you go closer in proximity to the presence of God, the only result is holiness. Not tears. Those are external manifestations. Not good feelings. Those are external manifestations. And, and, and again, great. But a real encounter with God, if the Holy Spirit is really moving, then the fruit is repentance and holiness. So we get more and more right in our lives with others and right with God. That's how you tell the fruit is even though I don't want to, and there are selective areas in my life, just like we talked about last week, about the selectivity of the age of displaying our only best sides and concealing the marred parts of our lives. So today, I want to pray for us together. Can we pray that God would come and really take over? He would really come and live in us. And as Paul developed this idea, as he moved from holiness, it would be transformative for our lives. It won't just make us feel good, but it'll make us better. It won't just make us happy. It'll make us holy. Amen? So let's, let's sing this chorus and make this our prayer right now.
I get closer to God and his presence touches my lips touches my life then it has to affect my marriage I can't just know God's word or know about God and then not transform me apologizing to my wife like every I don't know five hours or being prideful or being wrong it has to tenderize in a lateral level, the horizontal level. It has to make me a better husband. Now, Wesley, he talked about perfection, but he fell short. His marriage was terrible. So just because someone preaches about holiness or even creates movements, fail. And then you go, you talk about the radical presence of God. It's not theoretical, and it can't just be comprehended. It has to touch the lives of the people around us, and the measure of holiness in our lives will be how we treat others, especially the closest people in our lives, how we treat them with dignity, respect, and love. Because faith without actions, as the Bible says, is dead. And guys, I mean, I don't have to say this. The Christian witness of in the United States, particularly with so much politicization and so many mistakes. We have to live this out in a real and vulnerable way or our witness will fail. And I think we go back to the idea of holiness here, social holiness as we close. It's the Greek word aletheia. Living in truth and according to the truth. Not concealing anything but living open and, and holiness is not perfection because God didn't create us to be perfect we'll actually never be perfect you go well what, doc when I go to heaven I'll be perfect I'll have a perfect body almost almost I might but I don't know about no. no because if perfection really did happen, there would be no longer a reason to live anymore, per se. There would be no more growth. There would be no more change. So it's progression. It's direction. In this life, we won't ever attain it, but we keep pursuing it. So we got to become better fathers and better husbands and better wives, even though all the wives are pretty good. 
better boyfriends, right? I mean, better friends, better citizens. So if we don't live to the truth and allow the truth to touch others, even when it's uncomfortable in in the world of deceit, then our witness dies. So can we pray as we close today for courage to live out truth for myself when I look in the mirror? And how I live that out in the world. And we'll close. Father, we come before you today as a community that wants to live in the spirit of Alathea. Where there is no concealing of the parts that's marred, that's sinful, that's evil, our intentions, our minds, the things that we think. But the whole point of holiness and direction is that we're honest about it. Honesty, the Aletheia spirit, brings humility, brings real genuine community. Because when we confess our sins to one another, when we say we wronged you because I was prideful, I was reckless, I was stubborn, it brings forgiveness and it brings the presence of God because that's the truth. Father, help us live that out at home first, among our friends, in our community as a church, so that the world will know. This is not just something peripheral. We just go to church. One time, someone said to another person who brought them to our church, it's like, wait, you guys are actually trying to like, live this out for real? And the person said, yeah, we're actually trying to live it out. And the person said, that's crazy, man. That's cra-. Because a lot of times people think it's just, you know, a thing you do. You go to church, it's religion, it's church going. No, it's Alethea. That's who God is. That's who we need to become. And that's what brings power. Amen? Will you bow your heads for the benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.